An incredibly deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. With LinkedIn ads, you'll be able to target over 70 million decision makers all in one place. No deep voice required. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. Terms and conditions apply. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Howdy, hey, and hello there. Welcome to another episode of Weird Finance, a show where we try to help you feel a little less weird about money one conversation at a time. I am your host, Paco DeLeon, and this week I'm talking to financial therapist and author Lindsay Bryan Podvin. For years, I believed that earning more money would eliminate a lot of my problems. Of course, making enough does make some problems go away. I was able to save for an emergency, start saving for retirement, and I could spend my money on frivolous things that would make my life joyful. However, when I started to earn more, one thing I wasn't expecting is that I'd still have irrational anxieties about money. Silly, I know. But every now and again, I worry that I'm not doing the right thing, I'm not making enough, or that one spending decision will financially ruin me. In a universe of uncertainty, money can be a world of comfort, but it isn't safety. I've realized that for a long time, I've conflated these two things. I spoke with financial therapist Lindsay Bryan Podvin about why we have financial anxiety, what amount is healthy, and what tools can help ease our worries. Please enjoy my conversation with Lindsay. All right, Lindsay Bryan Podvin, welcome to Weird Finance. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure. I'm so excited to be here. I am so excited to talk to a financial therapist. I feel like not a lot of people are going to have the unbridled joy that I have to dig in and talk about emotions 
and money, but I love your approach. I love mind money balance. I love what you're all about. I love what you're trying to help people uncover. And I'd love for you to talk to the audience and tell us a little bit about yourself. What is it that you do? And uh, give us your story. In this very moment, My dog's nose is on my lap and I'm scratching it. But in general, I'm a financial therapist. So I have a background in clinical social work and I finished with my master's degree back in 2011 and went right into the nonprofit world as all of us good social workers do and really quickly started to realize how challenging it was going to be earning the amount of money that I was earning. I was earning less money than I did as a waitress. And the financial shame hit me like a tidal wave. I have a lot of privilege. And the particular privilege in this moment was that I graduated school without debt. And even in graduating school without debt, I was living paycheck to paycheck. I was struggling to make ends meet. And I felt an immense amount of shame for having not only squandered my financial privilege, but for trying to kind of make ends meet when I did all the things that I thought I was supposed to do. I went to college. I went to grad school. I found a meaningful job because that was the BS that was sold to all of us millennials is do a work you love and the money will follow. But it turns out like you can't pay your grocery bills with passion and love for the work that you do. So In addition to struggling financially, I am also a recovering perfectionist. So I did what a lot of good perfectionists do, and I thought, I'll just study my way out of my situation. And I went to the library, and I checked out armfuls and armfuls of personal finance books. This was like the early days of podcasting. So there were no TikToks about personal finance. There were very few podcasts about money. And so I read all the books that I could find and all of them, Paco, were basically telling me like, it's your fault. You just need to budget better. You just need to spend less. You need to stop going out to brunch and financing fancy cars and you'll be okay. And I just was like, that's not exactly the situation that I'm in. You know, I drive a used Honda Civic. I share a cheap one bedroom apartment above somebody's house with my partner. Like I'm doing everything that I can to make ends meet. And they helped me a little bit in that I learned about Roth IRAs and I learned a little bit more about how to dial down my spending, but it didn't really move the needle. And not only did it not really move the needle financially, it made me feel like shit too. Like I I felt so embarrassed that when I turned for help, they told me it was my fault for being there in the first place. And being a mental health professional, I also watched my mental health take a complete nosedive. I'd previously had anxiety and depression that was really well managed, and all of a sudden those symptoms came roaring back. I developed chronic insomnia where I never had trouble with sleep before, and as we know with insomnia, if you're not sleeping, your immune system is not really operating at its fullest capacity, and I was getting colds and flus all the time. And just feeling like, am I the only person here? Like, does any, how is everybody else making it work? Again, I come from this financial privilege background and I'm still struggling. Um, Fast forward a year later, I bring myself into my boss's office and I get so excited to like negotiate my raise. I had all the proof of all the work that I'd done. 
you know, I don't, I don't take sick days. My caseload is super high. I've, I've got all my notes in on time. I volunteered for all these different positions, um, you know, all the things that we're supposed to do. And I made the ask for a raise. And Paco, my boss, told me not only was I not getting a raise, but also I should be really thankful that I had a job. Yeah. And it, it, it didn't feel great, right? Like that doesn't feel good. And in that moment, I could feel like my heart sink into my stomach. I knew I had to get out. And this is not a, a you know, a knock on that particular nonprofit. This is the entire system that tells us we should be thankful for the crumbs that we get. And if you're struggling financially, it's probably your fault and not really taking into consideration all of the different things that impact the way that we do and don't engage with our money. Also, I should mention, like, a lot of the tips are things like, well, just start a side hustle. But when you're sleeping two to four hours a night and you're sick all the time, like, I couldn't go in and start a side hustle. I couldn't pick up a shift and just start waitressing again. Like, my body literally wouldn't let me. So anyway, I decide I'm going to find a better paying job. And I did. And that was great. And all of a sudden, when I started making better money, my my anxiety, my depression started to resolve, like started to become better managed. The insomnia mm-hmm. that I had, that took a little bit longer to resolve, but I started sleeping better. And over time, my immune system started to repair itself. And I realized through that lived experience, but also through my work as a clinical social worker, I was seeing people mostly with anxiety and depression. Man, a lot of these people here with anxiety and depression are just getting guidance about how to think happy thoughts. And, you know, I'm I'm being a little facetious here about therapy, but it's like, it's more than just thinking good thoughts and reframing. It's also about like what's actually going on financially. And my training as a social worker did not equip me to talk to them about money in a meaningful way. It taught me to help them find resources. So if somebody came in and said, oh, I'm really stressed about making ends meet, I would say, oh, let me help you get the 800 number for the energy company to make sure that your energy doesn't get shut off. Or let me connect you to this nonprofit group who is doing a budgeting 101 course. But like, they didn't really actually help me do any anything meaningful in the way of how do you feel about money? What systems are at play here? What can we do in our work together, but how can I also hold space for you as a human to navigate <laughs> to plug your podcast name, like the weird finance world that we are in. And so that really led me to seek out additional training in financial social work and in financial therapy so that I could really stay in my lane because I loved therapeutic work, but I also wanted to incorporate money work into my clinical practice. So that's kind of, you know, how I ended up here. All right, Lindsay. So you mentioned quitting your job as a social worker. What did you do between social work and becoming a financial therapist? I'm curious. Oh, great question. So I did not, I quit my nonprofit social work job, but I continued to be a social worker. I just found a better paying social work job. Um, So during that time in my better paying social work job, that's where my brain started going. There's something here. There's something amiss. And it took four and a half more years before I'd actually go out and become a financial therapist. So it was like 
just these breadcrumbs kind of along the way. So I spent four, four and a half years working in an academic research setting doing. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was really cool. I was working in a behavioral health. I was working in a pediatric clinic to help bring embedded mental health care into clinics. And then I was also doing community education. So I'd go to like high school PTAs and talk to them about the difference between anxiety and general teenagehood. Or I'd go to corporations and help them identify like just kind of burnout versus depression and how to make those connections. So I was doing that um, and crunching data. So three days a week, I was like in the weeds doing therapy work and community work. And then two days a week, I was crunching data and uh, submitting papers and grants and all that good stuff. Doing it all, doing God's work, basically. (sighs) You know, doing a little bit of everything. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I want to dig into financial anxiety and When I look at your career and I look at the way you approach finance, and when I even look at your face, I (laughs) see a lot of parallels with myself, right? I have gone through not making enough money, being a broke financial planner, riding my bike to work 15 miles a day, growing a garden. So I was saving $2 on a bag of lettuce and scratching my head and being like, I did the things though. I also graduated without any student loan debt, miraculously. And I was I was working in financial services. And I think that it's really important that we've experienced these things that we're talking about because it comes from this place of I've been there and I know what you've gone through. And do you think that that plays a big role in the fact that we both have such an empathetic approach to how we talk about money? Or, and maybe it's all of the above, how much of our similar background, right? Being women, being women of color, Filipino women of color, how much of that do you think, how much of all of these things play into your approach? I I mean, I think my lived experience and our lived experience makes a big difference in being able to have empathy and compassion for folks. Um, I think a big problem with the field of personal finance, and thankfully, there's there's been this sea change over the last five-ish years of more and more people saying, look, that approach doesn't work for me. I think there's so many things that go into having empathy and compassion. I think the personal finance field for so long has been this, you know, this checklist of do these things and you'll be okay. And, and do these things and you'll be okay is an easy thing to sell. Meaning it's much sure. easier to say, follow these steps and everything will be right. And then if you follow those steps and they don't work, it's your fault that they didn't work versus saying like the system's messed up. And like how I really appreciated what you brought into your book and and into your work is yes, the system is messed up and we still have to live within it. So what are the things that we can do to live within it so that we feel safer as humans and as individuals And what are the things that we can do to push for systemic change? It is this both and. Um, So I think there's so many things that go into into my approach that, that are above and beyond just therapy or just numbers. Love it. All right. Can we do the who, what, when, where, why of financial anxiety? I think this is the perfect time to be talking to you because I had a moment of financial anxiety myself in the middle of the night before this interview. The night before this interview, I woke up. And I just 
found a thing to worry about, you know? And I think it's fascinating that even as I check boxes and business is doing well and things are going great, that every once in a while I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm laying there and I'm like, really? This is the thing that we're ruminating on. So mm-hmm. is that financial anxiety? And and to what extent is it normal and, and healthy? Financial anxiety can impact everyone regardless of income or net worth. It is a, an easy myth to package and sell to say, if you earn more money and you make more money, you just won't have it. And that's the myth that we have all been sold with the American dream is work hard, make more money, and everything will be better. Not just your financial anxiety, but your life in general will be better. So there are are a few things in that question. Is anxiety normal? Yes-ish. Anxiety is a feeling that we will all experience in our lives, and that tells us that we're human and our body is physiologically responding to some sort of stressor, right? Our heart rate increases, our palms get sweaty, we get that tension in our stomach. All of that is our body signaling to us, hey, something's going on that's a little bit different. Let's make sure that you're safe. And it's a way that we can kind of scan the horizon for danger. Um, And so anxiety in short bursts, is a healthy um, signal from our body that something is wrong and is a cue to us to take a look at what's going on and see what we can do to either change our perspective or change our environment. It is normal to an extent. Where anxiety, and where I'll come to financial anxiety, where anxiety becomes problematic is if it's getting in the way of our ability to live our lives and function. So having a little bit of nerves on your way to work of like, oh my gosh, am I going to be late is normal. But if you get to work and you're five minutes late and you're spending the entire day ruminating on it going, oh my gosh, I was five minutes late. I think my boss saw this Mm. is definitely going in my file. Oh, my coworker looked at me weird. They know I was late. I'm getting fired. That's when it becomes a problem is when it impacts your ability to function. Similarly, with financial anxiety, it makes sense to double check that maybe your paycheck actually got deposited on the day that your boss said that it would, where it becomes problematic is if you are finding yourself either thinking, feeling, or behaving financially anxious even after that stressor has passed. So even after you've checked or maybe double-checked that your direct deposit is there, but you're still going, is it really there? What if it didn't get there? What if I accidentally had a credit card bill that I didn't know about and somehow my money has been pulled from my account and I'm actually broke, right? That future thinking, jumping to conclusions and catastrophizing is where financial anxiety becomes problematic because it starts to take control of our lives. And when we interact with anything, but in particular, when we interact with money from a place of frantic anxiety, we are bound to make some really terrible decisions because nobody likes feeling anxious. And what financial anxiety can do is we want to do anything to avoid that feeling. So we will make decisions Mm -hmm. in the hopes that that feeling will go away. So maybe we will download five different budgeting apps just to quadruple, you know, check that everything is actually in place. That's not actually really great. Or we take all of that money and we throw it towards paying down a credit card because we hate having credit card debt, not thinking, oh, shoot, my rent is due tomorrow and now I have no money to pay my rent. So it's this reactivity that comes from my financial anxiety that causes it to be problematic. So to answer your question, 
Financial anxiety happens to everyone. It's okay in short little bursts as a little cue of like, huh, is this really okay? Am I safe? But where it becomes problematic is like in that moment that you expressed of like waking up in the middle of the night with this panic, that's okay if it happens every now and again. That means you're human. But if it's happening every day or you're literally developing insomnia from it, that's time to really do a deeper check-in and make sure you're okay. Love it. Thank you. I'm going to try my best not to make this session with a therapist literally (laughs) not about me, but I'm going to have some more questions. Um, So from a professional perspective, do you think certain people are predisposed to develop financial anxiety or do you think that this is more of a thing that happens through experience? So we know that financial anxiety can happen to anyone, but we also know that some of the tendencies of the way that financial anxiety manifests tend to kind of cluster based on different people's identities, backgrounds, upbringings, et cetera. So for a lot of folks, as you can probably imagine, folks who come from immigrant, refugee backgrounds, there's a really good chance that that financial anxiety might manifest as financial hoarding behavior. I want to put all my money in the bank because it's really scary for me to invest and potentially lose that money. Because for immigrants and refugees, having cash on hand was quite literally an escape plan. So of course it might be difficult, even if cognitively we understand that putting money in investments after we have an emergency fund is probably a wise thing to do. It makes sense why physiologically that feels really, really scary. Similarly, we know that for folks who are in professions, helping professions, teachers, social workers, nurses, their financial anxiety tends to manifest a bit more as avoidance. I don't want to look at my money. That feels really scary to me. You know, I chose this profession because I care about students or my clients or my patients or whatever, right? So it can kind of manifest as avoidance. So there, there's so many different ways to answer that question, but the answer is it can show up in a bunch of different places, but there are certainly patterns based on different I- identities and backgrounds. And that kind of answers the next question that I was going to ask you, which is, do you see that there's like a link between the anxiety that we have and the narratives, like the stories that we have replaying in our mind? But it sounds like the answer is yes, absolutely. Yeah, 100%. We, and, and it's also like a chicken or the egg thing as well, is which comes first, having the money available and holding on to it. It can get a little sticky. But what I often say to folks, regardless of how their financial anxiety is showing up, is in a lot of personal finance spaces, they ask of us to erase our histories. They ask of us to just forget what your parents or grandparents went through. Just forget what your colleagues at work tell you. Instead of making the acknowledgement of why you do what you do, and then lovingly, compassionately asking that person, is that still true for you in this moment? So for example, if I'm working with a client who's, you know, second gen here and they fled a war-torn area and they are having a really hard time putting their money anywhere except for in cash, I might say something along the lines of, it makes sense that you are having a hard time moving this money from cash into investments because of your family history. And how true is it that in this moment, 
you need more than X dollars to be financially safe. Like, to, do you know what I mean? So we're, we're trying to sure. honor their past and also acknowledge their current lived reality versus just saying none of that matters. Just look at the numbers. I think it's really interesting. And I've made this observation about American society and just living in such a hyper capitalist, you know, consumer driven world. It's never okay for us to just feel the bad feelings. And it took me, I mean, talk therapy and so many years to really start to see that, right? Because like everything is always like commercials are such a great example too of like, they're going to make you feel bad. Like you're crappy for these reasons, but don't just feel bad because bad feelings are not good. Feel good by buying the thing. And it's just crazy to me how frequently like media marketing messaging agitates us, makes us feel bad and then, you know, never allows that bad feeling. So I just want to throw that out there and say, thank you for holding a space for all of us and letting us all realize that we could feel our bad feelings and we can learn how to tolerate them and uh, we'll be better on the other side. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also, small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to LinkedIn.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So, buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So, how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? 
it's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less, like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. Oracle.com strategic. You think you found love online? Think again. Online romance scams are on the rise, and they're targeting vulnerable, lonely hearts all around the globe. Scammers make fake profiles and slowly gain your trust. They often find excuses for never being able to meet in person. Then, once they've got you hooked, they ask for money. They'll claim an emergency, and they'll make it feel very urgent. These scammers can be convincing, but they're not who they claim to be. Don't be fooled by their smooth talk, flattery, and promises of a life together. The harm caused by online romance scams goes beyond just losing your money. They can cause emotional distress, damage your credit, and even lead to identity theft. Practice internet safety. Never, ever send money to someone you haven't met in person. Just say no. Weird Finance. Weird Finance. I want to dig into your book, your workbook, The Financial Anxiety Solution. And I would love for you to tell us about the four different money personas that you came up with. What are they? And I want to know which one you are. <laughs> so, Paco, I don't know about you, but my book, I feel like I already could do version two, version three, version four of it. <laughs> so... At this moment in time, those personas have evolved, but the the roots of them that you will find in the workbook continue to be the same. And I share this because as I've gotten feedback from readers and my audience, some of the terms that I use were terms that people were really turned off by. And as I look at them now, I'm like, oh, yeah, probably probably could have spent another minute or two with that. So I will share <laughs> with you kind of the, the zhuzhed up um, money personas and which one I am. So I would say I'll list them, I'll give you a little bit of info, and then I'll share which one I am. So we have blissfully ignorant, admirer, doomsday prepper, and free spirit. So the blissfully ignorant is the person who feels really uncomfortable with money. So that was kind of the example I gave of anxiety manifesting as avoidance. So they don't want to think about money. They think it's rude. They think it's gauche. They would rather just kind of close their eyes and hope that it sorts itself out. Um, And so they can be pretty avoidant with their money. Then we have the admirer who is kind of on this hamster wheel of the more money I have, the more I will be or feel X. Happier, more fulfilled, more relaxed, whatever it is. If I have more, then I will be blah. But the problem with the admirer is they're on this what psychologists call a hedonic treadmill. They get a little bit more and then they go, oh, 
you know, it doesn't feel exactly as good as I thought it would. So I need more money. And they keep pushing that goalpost up or they keep moving that goal line back and they aren't really feeling satisfied. So these are your kind of workaholics. They are the folks who tend to go into fields that potentially make more money, or they're your chronic entrepreneurs and side hustlers. They work, but they have, you know, some new project that they are doing on the side, or they work full-time, but they also drive Lyft or Uber on the weekends. Then we have the doomsday prepper. These are the people who hold on tightly to their money. They're pretty anxious and fear-based in general about money. There's this fear that it will disappear or not be there forever. And therefore it can manifest as something really interesting, which is on paper, these tend to be the folks who are doing well. They have emergency funds. They don't tend to have a lot of credit card debt, if at all any credit card debt, but they also really struggle with the ability to actually enjoy their money. So they're the folks Hmm. who maybe you go out to dinner with and they are like kind of the whole time being like, when, when are we going to split the villain, like Venmo each other? Like they can't even just be there and be present. And then finally, we have the free spirit who tends to associate money with excitement, with love, with joy, you know, with, with a lot of those dopamine hits. They are your spenders. They're also your gifters. So they don't just show up to your house with a bottle of wine when you have them over for dinner. They show up with a charcuterie board and a candle <laughs> and all this stuff. They're, they're, kind of your your givers. And as you can imagine, they tend to get into a bit more financial trouble. What I find with them is that they are actually incredibly optimistic almost to a fault in that they'll put things on their credit card and truly believe when they say, I'll figure out a way to earn that money before that bill comes due. They absolutely believe it. So they, they tend to kind of be in this like super, super optimistic cycle until they no longer can be and they've maxed out their credit card or they've maxed out their capacity to spend. I'll pause there. Do you want me to answer which one I am now or in a second? <laughs> wait, why? Why would we wait a second? I don't know. For dramatic pause. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like um, that. I like yeah, where your head's at. Yeah. <laughs> I'm definitely the admirer and my wife is definitely the free spirit. She really mm. does bring too many things. Sometimes I have to tell her to calm down with the gifts. I'm like, this might make people uncomfortable, the amount that we're bringing. So maybe pump the brakes a bit. But I'm curious what you uh, what your what your persona is. Yeah, my, my persona by default is blissfully ignorant. If I didn't have to actually think about money, oh. I wouldn't. Yeah, that's not what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> a lot of people are surprised by that. But I, I had the the privilege of being able to be blissfully ignorant in that I worked through college, but I I come from a background where we weren't struggling to make ends meet. I had a lot of the kind of quintessential 90s taglines always running through my head, right? Just like, go to college. It doesn't matter what you study. As long as you get a degree, you'll be okay. Like I had a lot of those things kind of plugged into my mind. And so I had the the ability to kind of fall into that. And then it wasn't until I really couldn't be blissfully ignorant anymore that I had to really take a look at my finances. I'm curious, what did your parents do while you were growing up? So my mom got pregnant with me in high school. And my dad, who my mom is white, my dad is Filipino. They split up before I was born. Okay. My mom was fortunate enough that her parents, my grandparents, took us in and allowed us to live with them 
while she went to college. And so she went and became a nurse because she was told it was the quickest path to money. It's the quickest way to get money in the short amount of time or guaranteed money or job security. She then, when she was in the hospital, met my adoptive father, who was a physician. And we then moved to rural Michigan from Detroit area because he moved there on a rural healthcare grant. So we grew up having money and also living in a low cost of living area, but also I was the only brownish kid in a very white town. (laughs) But because of my mom having me at a young age, she always, always, always told me the importance of money. So even though I'm blissfully ignorant, I had a lot of financial education by way of narration, Mm. meaning Anytime we went to the bank, she would explain what she was doing. I'm putting money into our checking account. We would look, I can remember looking at like the bank CD rates and her explaining to me what a CD rate was. Anytime we got money in like a card, we always had, we, me and my siblings, my mom ended up having four children with my adoptive dad. Anytime we got money, we had to put I want to say it was at least half, but probably closer to 80% of it in our bank account. So I always had a lot of financial information floating around. Um, But what's really interesting is even within the family, I remember a lot of that. But if you ask my siblings, they remember different things. So it's also like I was the oldest. I was probably of an age where I was hearing these things. So um, you never know. But yeah, that's that, that that's what my parents did. And that's why I, I'm very clear about like, I, I come from a lot of financial security. I think that's amazing that your mom was teaching you about CDs and even more amazing that you were like, you know what, let me take some notes here. I'm intrigued. <laughs> I'm totally. interested by the banking system and the products they have available to me. <laughs> right. Total, totally a bit, a bit on the nerdy side. There's, there's a lot of that there. <laughs> I love it. And it makes sense to me why you went into therapy with your both of your parents who are, you know, basically in healthcare and a lot of their work is is at the end of the day, it is service, you know. So that makes total sense uh, why you chose the path that you chose and especially learning about the, the CD part. So it's yeah. <laughs> loud and clear. I see, I see it exactly. It's all coming together. Yeah. Absolutely. When you're not writing books, you have a clinical practice, right? And you mm-hmm. are seeing patients. But I know right now you are in demand. You are popular, which means your, your, your wait list is, is robust, right? So anybody who wants to work with you, they have to get on a wait list. Yeah. Yeah. This is my plea for anybody (laughs) listening who's in a helping field. If you're a therapist in any way, shape or form, you know, maybe think about specializing in financial therapy because there are so few of us and the demand is so high. At the time of this recording, Paco, I have nobody in my state to refer people to who are financial therapists. That's wild. It's it's the only one, literally. Yeah. Unless somebody right now is taking their exam and is becoming a financial therapist, then I hope there is. Please, please DM me or email me and I will send you folks. But yeah, I have a clinical practice. It's full with a very lengthy wait list. And I'm really clear with clients when they get on that wait list that I, I recommend that they do whatever they can to start taking those steps towards financial improvement, finding therapists who are at least open to talking about money, but it is it is hard and it, it is much needed. People are really hungry 
for compassionate professionals who are willing and able to talk about money with them. So I am from the mindset that if you can afford therapy, you should do it. Maybe not even just for yourself, but for the world, right? It will make the world a better place just to understand what your own blind spots are and then do with that information what you will. But I think therapy is like, it should be so normal and so common for everyone, especially if you can afford it and you're not doing it. Come on, do the world a favor, go to therapy. But my question to you is, do you, well, one, do you agree with that statement? And two, can you give me some of the signs or like when, when, when do you think somebody should seek out a financial therapist? Mm. So do I think everybody needs therapy? Yeah, probably. I mean, I think, I think as a society, we have gotten so much better about destigmatizing going to therapy and still there's, there's a lot of work to do. I think that having a person that is just yours, where you can just talk about your shit is so powerful. And we don't have a lot of those spaces. In terms of when is it time to seek out therapy, there are so many different reasons that anybody could seek out therapy. If you've heard the words therapy and Paco and I talking today and you're like, huh, I'm curious about that, then I would say go get therapy. But in general, if you're like, I don't know, is that for me? Is that not for me? I think that if you have tried things on your own, self-help books, some coaching, you've maybe done the things you're quote unquote supposed to do for your mental health. You've started moving your body. You've started trying to get into a regular sleep schedule. You are eating at regular and healthy intervals and you're not feeling great, then that's a sign. Um, And because not feeling great is subjective, I would invite you to think about, is this my version of feeling good enough? Often we go up and down in how we feel in life. So we can think back to like, oh no, actually there was this time where I had far more energy, where I wasn't snapping all the time, where I wasn't on edge all the time. It'd be nice if I could get back to that space. That's probably a cue. Um, And, or if you're just feeling like, man, everything I've tried just doesn't feel like it's sticking, that would be a good cue. Like I think back to the story that I shared about being in that first nonprofit, like that would have been a really great time for me to get back into therapy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I waited a little yeah. time. I've been in and out of therapy my whole life, but at that moment in time, I was not in therapy, but I should have been. <laughs> there it is. Even the therapist needs a therapist, folks. Always. <laughs> okay, there's one other thing in your book that had me feeling some kind of way. And it was when you talked about unhealthy ways of coping with financial anxiety. And you said, procrastination is the sign. (laughs) And I said, Ooh, Lindsay is coming after me, making my face all red and hot because boy, I can tell you what I love to procrastinate, but I have an argument, you know, have you heard of Parkinson's law It's the old adage that says work expands to fill the time allotted for its completion. And therefore, that is why I wait to the last minute. But can you talk a little bit about procrastination in terms of, let's talk about it in general in terms of finances and and whether or not it's healthy in any amount? Yes. So uh, procrastination, we are all familiar with. It is putting off, uh, when we look at like its Latin roots, it is putting off for tomorrow what can be done today, essentially. Um, So we all do it. uh, And we do engage in those little white lies, Paco. Yes, Parkinson's law, but also a lot of us do things like, (laughs) 
oh, I'm better when I have a lot on my plate, or I do better under a deadline, or it's not that much, or I can do it tomorrow, right? A lot of us do that. And when it comes to money and financial anxiety, why we do that is because we don't like facing things that feel uncomfortable. And sitting down to do something Mm -hmm. tedious, whether it is like, I just got my new credit card in the mail, right? It expired. Now I've got to go in and update all of my bills and put in the new credit card number. That's going to be a pain in the butt. I'm not really looking forward to it. And there's a very good chance that I probably won't update it until, you know, Netflix says, hey, you can't actually log in (laughs) until you pay your bill. And then I'll sit down and do it, right? Sometimes we have, we need that external motivation to do it. But the reason we procrastinate on big tasks could be a number of things. When we think about financial anxiety and we think about money stuff, a lot of money stuff feels tedious, overwhelming, or we're not sure that we'll understand it. So we put it off. Ah, 401k and signing up at work, that feels like a really big lift. I don't know what to do. Instead of like, what's the first step I need to take? Maybe I need to call my HR rep and just see what options are available to me. Maybe with whatever brokerage that my company uses, maybe they give me access to a quarterly financial planner or advisor, right? Like what's the first step that we can take when we think about these big steps? It is really overwhelming to think about something, you know, you and I are recording this kind of on the cusp of New Year's resolutions. When we think about setting a big lofty goal, like save $1,500 in an emergency fund, that could feel like a really, really heavy lift for most Americans who have $400 or less in their checking account versus I'm just going to save $50 this month and then I'll try and save 75 next month. So with, with procrastination, we only see that big mountain. We don't see those little steps. So I would say in terms of what to do with procrastination, lovingly challenge yourself. Like, am I doing this procrastination as this little white lie because I don't want to face it. And then if I were to take that task and break it down into steps, what one step could I do right away? That reminds me of a question that I have heard before. I can't remember where I've heard it, but the question that you ask yourself is what are you willing to unfeel or what, what aren't you willing to feel? That's the question. What are you not willing to feel in this moment? So Mm -hmm. All right, Lindsay, I hear you with the (laughs) white lies and the procrastination. And I will take a, I'll take a look with eyes wide open every time I I don't want to do the tedious thing, like editing a thing or something like that. So thank you for that. All right. I want to, before I let you go, I want to ask you these rapid fire questions. Um, All right. So here we go. Tell me, is there anything that you've purchased and it could be recently or not recently, and you just feel like that was money well spent. Yeah, I'm not a big shopper. So when I spend money, I'm really happy to spend it. So I was just thinking of like over the past year, what have I spent money on that's been really joyful was um, a second Dutch oven. I'm a big bread baker. And so technically I could bake one loaf at a time, but when I go through all the effort, I want to bake two. And it felt a little frivolous, but I was like, no, I'm going to do this. Other things that I've bought this year that felt really exciting were I, I bought I bought a Peloton, you know, that felt like nice. That felt really good. And it's something Luxury. that I use all the time. So yeah, those are those were just like some items this year that felt really good to buy and were totally worth it. No regrets. Love it. Uh definitely baking two breads at once sounds luxurious and I love that for you. 
It is. (laughs) (laughs) What's one piece of advice you'd give to your younger self? I think I would just say it's okay to be weird in that I did a lot of weird things as a kid, but then I was racked with like the the secondary embarrassment of it. Like, for example, I was in a barbershop quartet in high school and sang in, in said barbershop quartet at a pep rally, which is like the nerdiest thing <laughs> you can imagine. Um, I know, I know. And then, of course, like for the rest of the day, I was like, what have I done? What is wrong with me? Instead of being like, Lindsay, that was fucking weird and also good for you. Like, I just wish I could have done the weird things without having that like embarrassment hangover later. Like I wasn't too embarrassed to do the thing, but I was embarrassed enough to feel bad afterwards. And I wish I didn't have that. I have more follow-up questions about this, (laughs) if you don't mind. I know this is a show about finance, but it's called Weird Finance. So it's right on on brand. What song did you sing at the pep rally? Oh my God. Great question. Don't remember. Do you know how long ago that was? It was a long time. Okay. Yeah. I I don't remember. I wish I did. And I'm I'm not lying. I just, I can't remember. But it was was embarrassing. We talked about these little white lies, Lindsay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm procrastinating on remembering. I'm conveniently forgetting it at the time of this recording. There it is. Yeah. (laughs) Is there video of this performance? More importantly. Oh, geez. I really, really hope not. Thank God it was in the time before like digital cameras were a thing and cell phone cameras did not exist yet. Thank God. And how did this band get started? Was it a school project? Is it like a school sponsored barbershop quartet? Is this, did you answer a Craigslist ad? How did you get into this band? I love that you're calling it a band because we had no instruments except for a you know, like a tuning fork, whatever they're called. How did it come to be? That's really funny. I forgot how it came to be. I was a singer and I was in musical theater. And one of the people in that group on the side wanted to do a barbershop quartet. And like, she was the one who organized it and held auditions for it. So yeah, so it was like a not sanctioned extracurricular activity that was started in the school, but not school related, if that makes sense. I love it. Yeah. I guess yeah. it's called an acapella group and not a band. My bad. But yeah, band is cool. it was <laughs> cool. You okay. were in a band, Lindsay. <laughs> it would be much cooler if I was in a band, but I was not. <laughs> a band-like activities. How's that? Band-like activity. Okay. Did you have any financial superstitions growing up? I'm curious. No. So this one, this is a hard question because no financial superstitions, but on the weird train of things, this is the closest I could get, which is anytime growing up, I or my family members got like a wart. This is weird. My mom told us that we had to take a penny and rub it on the wart and then bury it. So that's like a coin money adjacent. I don't know where it comes from. I don't know why it exists. That's the only like money-ish thing. That's probably one of my favorite ones because that is bizarre. That's really <laughs> bizarre. I've never heard that before. So you, you're you winning at weird stuff today, I got to say. Ha- happy, to, happy to help. <laughs> okay, my last rapid fire question is, do you have any financial fumbles of your past that you can look back and laugh at? Oh, of course. I have so many financial fumbles, but the most fun fumble that I had was 
Between undergrad and grad school, I had a a kind of marketing job. Like, you know, when you would go to a concert and there are people there with booths and they have t-shirts for different corporations, they're like repping a product basically. That was my job. And so I got to travel all over the country. And for a spell, I was in New York City. And I happened to be in New York City at the same time that one of my sisters was visiting New York City. And I got to be the cool older sister. And I took, I don't even know how long of earnings it was, but we went all out. I spent over $500 on one evening with her Just like doing everything that we possibly could. Like, we're going to a show. We're going to dinner. I'm sneaking you into bars and slipping like bouncers money. It was wild and definitely a fumble. I have never spent that much money on an evening out since and don't imagine that I will, but it was worth it. I love it. I love it. So you got a streak. You're in a band. You're sneaking your little sister into bars and you're getting awards. You sound pretty. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The great euphemism. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on that note, Lindsay, where can the people who want to follow along follow along? Tell us, tell us where they can find you. Yeah, I can't guarantee any harmonizing or quartetting if you follow me. Or maybe that's a great reason to follow me is that I guarantee that I won't do any of that. You can find me. My business is called Mind Money Balance. You can find me on Instagram. That's my website. And my podcast will be re-debuting in 2023 under the same name, Mind Money Balance. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Lindsay. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. My pleasure. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also, small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com customer to claim your credit. 
That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. Got menopause? We've got you. Hi, Jackie here, founder of ExoJackie. Feel supported throughout your menopause journey and beyond with our organic protein powders and symptom relief boosts. Formulated to keep bones and muscles strong, ExoJackie products help reduce bloating, hot flashes, and weight gain. Enjoy 20% off with promo code EXOPODCAST. Shop now at XOJACQUI.com. Made for women by women. And now it's time to ask Paco anything. Welcome to Ask Paco, a segment where I answer your money questions. Let's listen to this week's question. Hey Paco, thanks so much for the podcast. This is Lizzie calling from Toronto, Ontario in Canada. And I'm curious to know if you have any advice about making a budget with a spouse or a partner that you share money with. My partner, my spouse and I recently got married and we're trying to do a values exercise to understand where we want to invest our money, our savings and how we should budget. And we're a little lost as to where we should actually be putting it and trying to find the best methodology in terms of values. Looking forward to your response. Thank you so much. Hey, Lizzie. First of all, congratulations on your recent marriage. I'm happy to hear that the two of you are trying to get aligned and synced up when it comes to your joint finances. I think the main two things that you're trying to figure out are the spending piece and then the savings and investments piece. And then, of course, making sure that you're considering your values along the way. So I found one method of managing finances to be particularly useful And I think it strikes the balance between working towards the same financial goals while also maintaining some level of autonomy. And it's called splitting the check. Splitting the check involves collectively splitting your paychecks into just three broad categories of expenses. So first, there's the bills and life category for all of your essential spending, things like rent or mortgage, your food at home, insurance and your debt payments. Then there's the future and goals category. And this category is going to encompass all of the savings and investing for your future selves, your future goals, from emergency funds to retirement and everything in between. And the last category is what I call the fun and BS category. And it's for all of the non-essential things. These things are, you know, the things that bring you joy and they make life feel like life. There are a few pillars to splitting the check. One is that you must keep a separate checking account for all of the joint bills and life expenses. And then you want to have two separate checking accounts for each person for so each of you can have your own fun and BS checking account. There's a little bit of upfront calculating to understand how you'll actually be splitting up each of your paychecks. But having your own spending accounts is a way to keep some autonomy when it comes to spending. But at the same time, you're still making sure to take care of joint expenses and joint future goals as well. When it comes to the savings and investment aspect, the first thing you want to knock out is to set up and to fund an emergency fund. 
I recommend keeping cash in a high yield money market savings account. And you'll want to have at least three months of expenses or as much as 12 months of expenses saved up in this account. The number of months is really going to depend on what you're both comfortable with and what makes sense financially. Now, if you can afford to save and invest 10% of each of your paychecks, that's a really, really great start. After you save for your emergency fund, the next thing most folks save or invest in is retirement. I think in Canada, you folks have the registered retirement savings plan. Here in the U.S., we have our 401k plans. When it comes to saving and investing, I know I just said that 10% is great. 10% is a really great starting point, but you really want to aim for something larger. You want to aim for 20 to 30% of your income if you can afford to. That's really going to put you in a really solid financial position so that you have flexibility when it comes to emergencies, when it comes to opportunities, and of course, the possibility of retirement. The other thing that I think is really important from, you know, less of the practical, pragmatic aspect is really dealing with kind of the interpersonal or the emotional aspect of money with you and your partner. So scheduling weekly finance time for both of you to check in, to review transactions, to talk about money, to look at your progress in terms of your goals, and to just, you know, have a space where you can bring up financial conversations. It doesn't have to be long. You can, I would say 20 minutes is a really great starting point. And 20 minutes over a long time really will go a long way. My last bit of advice is to both understand what your top three to four values are in life and to talk to each other about it. When you know what your partner values, it's a lot easier to navigate your finances because you're understanding their financial behaviors from their perspective. Be patient and be kind, and I hope this helps you both get on the same page. If you have a question you want me to answer, please call our hotline at 833-ASK-PACO, or you can email us at weirdfinancepod at gmail.com. Thank you. Here we are at the end of another episode of Weird Finance, which is an iHeartMedia production and just would not be possible without the help of many wonderful, caring, hardworking, and talented folks like my producer, Ramsey Yunt. Ramsey produced, edited, did some sound design, and he even sang a little bit for this episode. Thank you to Lizzie from Toronto for calling our hotline and asking me a question about newlywed finances. Thank you to Jen Pablo, my sweet wife, for lending her voice for this week's PSA. Our theme song was written and performed by me and my dear, dear friends, Jenna Parker and Andrew Parker. If you have any questions, suggestions, comments, you want to be part of the show, give us a call at 833-ASK-PACO. That's 833-275-7226. Or you can send us an email at weirdfinancepod at gmail.com. All right, that's it. We'll catch you here next week. And in the meantime, take care. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. 
featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane, back to reality. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Terms apply. Got menopause? We've got you. Hi, Jackie here, founder of ExoJackie. Feel supported throughout your menopause journey and beyond with our organic protein powders and symptom relief boosts. Formulated to keep bones and muscles strong, ExoJackie products help reduce bloating, hot flashes, and weight gain. Enjoy 20% off with promo code EXOPODCAST. Shop now at exojacqui.com. Made for women by women.